Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. Firstly, just a reminder that all the interviews I do are also available in video format on YouTube. I like to record the video because sometimes I find it's quite nice to watch the interviews rather than just listen, so please head over to my YouTube channel, that's Buckland Architects. Please subscribe and share the channel with anyone you think might like it. Thanks a lot. Now on with the podcast. My guest today is a green infrastructure professional, a speaker, a photographer, and a nature conservationist. He is currently the president of the European Federation of Green Roof Associations and founder of livingroofs.org. This conversation is all about green roofs, green walls, and green infrastructure. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dusty Gedge. I'll try not to be too impolite about architecture. <laughs> oh, no, please do be impolite. <laughs> I've got a history sheet. My stepfather was a structural engineer, and I used to go on site doing piles with him, and he was a very gentle, modest man, but architects didn't rate highly in his uh, his canon of professionals. <laughs> so I, I have that from when I was like 12, 13, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, you know, it's easy. I've said to everybody, because you get to talk to anybody, I said, it's just really easy in the construction game to blame architects, you know. <laughs> it's just really is easy, yeah. Well, we also have all the legal liability. Yeah. yeah. It seems like we have all the legal liability. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's very hard to sue an architect. Well, I was very. I did celebrate. Well, I did celebrate when I read in the Evening Standard. It was two years ago that a developer managed to sue Norman Foster for a hotel. Successfully. Yeah, a hotel at Heathrow, and he, he successfully sued him. For what? Uh, completely. Uh, what they what they do, isn't it? I've got to remember the story. Is you know they design it, pay him a lot of money, and then when it goes to the next stage of planning. You know, they they fob it off to a, a lower architect, and this developer uh, didn't know, and obviously he didn't get what went into outline into outline planning, and he got what this detail, and he was fucking apoplectic, this guy, and he he went all the way, and I remember the he said nobody nobody sues Norman Foster, and he said well I have and I won, <laughs> I kind of liked him actually. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we always try and farm off the responsibility to um, every other consultant. I mean, every other consultant tries to farm off responsibility. Oh, yeah. Consultant. Yeah. I'm just witnessing this when you're leading like a design team meeting. It's very, always disheartening, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, like, because I do, deal with waterproofers, you know, I, and people say, oh, why, why are they insisting on their proprietary system? I said, well, I don't like their proprietary system, but they've got to guarantee the waterproofing. So that's their liability. And you've yeah. got a kind of empathy. Empathy is always very good in this game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, before you start, but maybe maybe you can start by outlining what your sort of background is and how you got into green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you do now? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to ask a question, or should I just proceed? So, you know, how did I become a president of the European Federation of Green Roof and Wall Associations? Um, sorry? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do say in my talks I I went from being a punk to a president because I was punk years ago for three days. I was an actor and a circus performer. Um, 
Uh, that's how I came to London. But ever since I can remember, I've been watching birds. And so I set up a, a circus workshop down in Deptford, uh, Greenwich, to teach specifically targeted truants to get them off the street who were smoking too many drugs. Um, and I set up this workshop, eventually got funded by Greenwich Council. And the guy who then sort of managed this process was part of a thing called Creekside, which is there's a creek in Deptford. And they wanted a professional bird watcher. And they wanted a local person, and I got this job doing this bird watching survey. And obviously, this has got nothing to do with architecture until this moment, because um, we found this particular bird. It's called the Black Red Star, which has got a prote protected status. And it's a material consideration in planning applications to mitigate for a protected species. Well, obviously, this whole creekside area is being regenerated, lots of buildings going up there. And so the only way they could mitigate was we went well, why don't we shove it on the roof? And it really was like that. Let's just shove it on the roof. And I have no background in the built environment. And uh, so what happened really was uh, a lot of the consultants, big multidisciplinary consultants, you know, the really famous ones, oh, no, you can't do that. It's technically not possible. So I actually, uh, I had a friend of mine who was working at London Wildlife Trust. He sent me an article in German from Switzerland. And I contacted, it was, you've got to remember, this is 22 years ago. I mean, emails were like, to, yeah, late 90s. I mean, sending an email was like pushing a rock up a, a slope, you know. But I sent an email to a guy called Bernard Zay in Bern. He worked for the Swiss um, nature body. And he put me in touch with a guy called Dr. Stefan Brunison in Basel. And I paid my own money, flew to Basel in 2000. And I like to say from that moment on, I found out everything technically to be able to put a green roof up. And so I'm president now. I know all the codes of practices. The Italian is the best. There's a really interesting one in Bogota, which we might bring up in Colombia. Ours, most of them are based upon the German. I can quote you 2.453. You know, I can go for, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we've just launched our new UK green roof code, which architects should look at and use. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with everything in these codes um, because I have this sort of deeper knowledge. And I think what's important is because I come from a plants, insects and birds background, I'm interested in the vegetation, not in the product. And I think what would be key for this from a, a prosethalizing point of view is if we're talking about green roofs or any landscape, we should really be talking about the process, you know, what's its functionality and not give me a product, tick the box and walk away, which unfortunately is what happens 80% of the time when a green roof is specified or designed. Yeah, it's funny, just before we started this, I was reading an article about biodiversity net gain by uh, a professor of biodiversity at Oxford University. It's a very interesting article. I am 
you know, when you look, and I'm going to kind of segue around this, you know, where, you know, I started doing all this about 1997. And in my current talks, I have a picture of the Sainsbury's at North Greenwich, which was built in 1999. And it was the most sustainable retail store in 1999. And it used to have this little bit of, it had this bit of turf around the base. And it was, oh, look at that really clever green roof. Well, it was just a lawn. So to me, it was... There was nothing exciting about it, but it was the most sustainable retail store. Now, whether people could criticise or whatever, I don't care about that. So in 2019, on the same site, Sainsbury's was knocked down, and the IKEA Greenwich has been put up there, and it was the most sustainable retail store in 2019. And just to finish this story, I say, what will be the most sustainable store in 2039? And so the point of that story is over the 20 years of being involved in this, Yes, we didn't talk about climate change in, in 2000. We started talking about it in 2004. It's the first time the government mentioned it. We didn't really talk about in the built environment, really, biodiversity, natural capital, ecosystem services. We do now. The problem with it is we go to the other subject that was just surfacing around 2000 was sustainability and particularly carbon. So, you know, Briam is all was originally all about carbon. So, you know, I'd go and sit with architects and it was all about how much carbon they could save. Green roofs, let's say we got a carbon, we don't care about that. And why I bring that up is even with the natural capital and biodiversity net gain, the way that they're, they're, the metrics are developed are not complex enough to deal with the complexity of biodiversity, natural capital, ecosystem services. And it's just because how we we do things, that's that's our cultural way of doing things. And in a way, we need to shift to, to a better approach. And that underlies everything, you know, architecture, engineering, you know, ecology. It's kind of still in this sort of, I don't know, 19th century, very linear process. Yeah, well, I've, I've actually talked similar about something similar to that about holism in one my previous paper I mentioned to you um, about sort of the, the complex systems involved and how they sort of integrate into I guess the theoretical side of architecture but I'm also interested in how they integrate into the practical side and how architecture weaves itself into the complex systems of the natural world and the natural environment and the built environment and I, and I suppose you're right in saying that there's there's such a, as I think you said before, a tick box approach to the kind of this sort of green infrastructure and greenwashing, I suppose, terms being used around that, that we need a more holistic way of looking at things. But how do you think is the best way to achieve that as it relates to Well, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I mean, I think what we need. You know, my specific area or the thing that I'm pretty well known for is green roofs. I've helped write policy. I've written technical guidelines. But my interest in green roofs is at biodiversity. Um, you know, I deal with everything else. And I think the way, the only way we can change that is everybody takes it seriously and says it is the most important performance output of that thing and i'm going to if if i may um why i brought up bogota so columbia have created this this guideline for green roofs and you can actually google google it and there's an english paper about it and um 
I wish all guidelines were written this way because what it what it's done is, and the guy who did it, Andre Ibanez, he's he's a he's a professor of architecture and he's a very interesting man. So he looked at all the guidelines, which let's be quite frank, the mother of all guidelines in green roofs is German. Now. This is where we get into some technical stuff yet. So the, our codes of practice in the Western world are based upon waterproofing first. Right, waterproofing. Is it protected from vegetation and soil? Second thing is, when this was always devel- developing around 1984, every ch- everything changed in Germany about 1984 because they started to make policy he said, right, okay, the waterproofing industry wasn't very, very good in 1984. There was a lot of leaks. The flat roofing industry was crap everywhere, yeah? And it was it was crap in Germany. <laughs> you know, I've got people I know. So the second thing was, how do we get the water off quickly, as quick as possible? And then there's soil and vegetation, right? We don't care about that. <laughs> Those two are the most important things. So our guidelines really are, are built in this very linear process from waterproofing up. Bogota goes, what does the city want? Now, if the city wants cooling, you go down here, you do this. If the city wants biodiversity and cooling, you go down here and you do that. If the city wants stormwater, cooling and, or if it wants food growing, or if you're in a slum. So it, it does this, it's about performance criteria. It, it's framed, what, what do we want to achieve in this neighbourhood, this building? What do we, as the city, want to gain from from this this green stuff, yeah? So when you do it that way, it, eventually you go through all that and then you get to what he states as the inert elements, the things that don't live, which is waterproofing, drainage boards, insulation. And so it goes down to that point. And actually what that means is they make better decisions about what the soil and vegetation is going to be. But here it's like, right, okay, is my waterproofing uh, protected? Is my water getting off and uh, soil and vegetation fine? Oh, and the other thing is structure. Is it light enough? So there's an assumption in in the in in the world, and I'm not blaming architects and all engineers. They go right. Well, the lighter it is, the better it is. Well, if you're interested in soil and vegetation, the lighter it is, the worse it is. So again, the Bogota goes right. If you want biodiversity. You know, you've got to be within these parameters. So it's starting from performance function from a climate change and biodiversity and green infrastructure perspective, not from a product um, basis. And that's a fundamental difference. Yeah, I suppose, I guess, because in climates like ours, traditionally the, the ingress of water was sort of the primary problem wasn't it and have been for yeah. hundreds of years and even into the well into the 20th century and started building flat roofs and they all leaked and i was always told early on oh you'll be really careful with green roofs because they always leak and the flat roofs always leak and all this kind of thing i suppose people there's still sort of a nervousness probably and perhaps now the technology the actual the building systems are finally caught up that they're reliable enough to be able to sustain um, even not optimally designed systems, green roof systems. Well, I mean, first thing is to defend, you know, obviously when I got involved in this, you know, I had to meet a lot of people who sold green roofs who are waterproofers. And the first guy, I got three of them together, Sarnafil, um, Alamask and Bowder. 
um, through a guy who was with Alamas then. And Alamas, he used to say, I go into the architects and he said, well, you're just using these green roofs to flog, flog your waterproofing, aren't you? It was quite disdainful. So the waterproofing industry has always been, from what I've experienced, been viewed very disdainfully. The waterproofing industry in the United Kingdom is really, really up to speed and things do leak. And that's normally down to bad workmanship or it's down to errors of other trade. And on the errors of other trade, <coughs> the most sensible thing to do is get a green roof on it as soon as it's waterproofed because then the waterproofing is protected. It's counterintuitive. And I've just got to give you an example of a development near here. You know, it's the largest green roof in the Royal Borough of Greenwich and there was some leaking on it. It's got paving on it. It's got green roof. And this happened to me 10 times. Must be the green roof's fault. So the green roof contractor's called in to remove the green roof. And he says before he moves it, I think you should remove the paving and check underneath the paving first. No, no, no. It's got to be that, that green roof, you know. So 300 square metres of a lot of soil and stuff is removed. There's no leak. Where's the leak? It's on the paving. And it's somebody's dropped a scaffold pole on the waterproofing before the paving went in. Now, I'm not joking. That has happened to me so many times. And I've got Mark Harris, who's chair of uh, the Green Roof Organisation now. He used to work for Sarnafil. I remember him telling me in 2004, it, the league had to be because of the green roof. No, it was on the exposed membrane. So what do you do? You don't, it's pragmatic is to check the exposed membrane. No, no, it's got to be that green roof thing. That's got to cause the leak. So it's kind of an interesting because... It's counterintuitive. Protect the membrane. The other thing is everybody goes, oh, leak testing. Oh, that's a burden. You go like, it costs a couple of thousand pounds. Leak test it. You know, that should be, you know, that shouldn't be the waterproofer's role. It should be whoever owns that. So, well, I want to check that everything's fit for purpose. So we don't really do that. We kind of blame, we shift blame. And, you know, if you put a good green roof system on a good waterproofing, that that roof should, should last 60, 70, 150 years. You know, local authorities change their waterproofing every 20 years. I've told them, you know, put a good green roof on there. You won't have to change that. And actually Camden started to do that about 2006. But because it's new and everyone goes, oh, you know, it's not part of it. You can see new, don't they? I always think of the Icelandic houses, which are just, I mean, they don't have damp membranes and, and all this kind of stuff. They just have planks of wood and large chunks of turf. Basically. Well, they have actually birch bark underneath it. And, bark, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, obviously that's a waterproofing layer. And, you know, you think, well, if you're laying pieces of birch bark about this big, I mean, that's yeah, to actually get that consistent. I mean, that, that takes some. But, you know, you brought that up. <laughs> Because I'm sort of planning this sort of green roof masterclass, and you know I'm going to do talk about the modern development of green roofs, and you know it's, it's insightful. <laughs> the modern green roof movement really grew out of ecologists in West Berlin looking at these roofs that are vegetated. They didn't have any wilderness to go to because of the Iron Curtain. And in the late 1870s, 1880s in Berlin. There was a wet bitumen waterproofing which was was um, produced, which is highly inflammable. So to protect the to, to protect it 
from fire, they covered it in six centimetres of sand. They're called mise carton roos. All over Berlin, there were these sand roofs, you know. And obviously, there's not very many of them left now because of what happened in the Second World War. You know, was, you know, Berlin got pretty, pretty trashed. So there's one in the Grunwald on a water treatment centre, and that was built in, I think it was 1886, I remember rightly. And it vegetated, and there's a few still left in the centre of Berlin, and they vegetated, but the vegetation is different in the Grunwald than in in the centre of Berlin. And the reason that is because Berlin was a city like London that used coal. So air pollution limited the species that lived on these roofs. In the Grunwald, it's out on the west, slightly in the rural part, you've got a different vegetation. So when architects think about a green roof, they think of sedums. Yeah. Well, it, sedums were quite good in Berlin at, at putting up with the air pollution. And once we get into that, we get into, right, what I need is a product. I need a sedum green roof. It, it's not saying that sedums are wrong, but it's, it's a product. It's kind of Ikea, right? That's what I get, and that's what I get. The original green roofs in the 60s and 70s in Germany and Switzerland, it was really Switzerland, were actually all wild flowers. Then regulation came in and flat roofing and getting water off so it turned from wildflowers to sedums because of one of the technical elements that were required. They didn't use to use drainage boards in prior to 1984. They were brought in when um, regulations were coming in. And there's, if you go anywhere in the Alps, anywhere in hilly areas of Germany, France, da la la Standard practice to have a garden on a garage in a mountainous area because, you know, you know. so the, the, this culture of vegetating and using gravel as a kind of drainage element has been there for years. Well, quite interesting that that, that doesn't seem to have infiltrated the sort of British vernacular on this island apart from perhaps up in sort of the Hebrides or up in Scotland to some degree. But it, it seems very Nordic kind of thing. Um, and it doesn't seem to be so much in the UK. Maybe that's why it never caught up quite so quickly. Well, the, the turf, in that case, that's the turf roof concept. And obviously in the Celtic areas, they did it. They do it a lot in West Wales, actually. Um, but obviously there may well be a vernacular tradition in England, but it might have been lost a long, long time ago. I can't believe that it's not, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you go back even probably into Anglo, early Anglo-Saxon time, turf roofs were probably around. Because it's a very pragmatic thing to do, but it's got got lost as you, you, you go into the clay, clay area and those western parts were relatively poor, I suspect, poorer. I'm not, it's an interesting thing to research because I can't believe that there's not any... T- vernacular turf roofs. You mentioned sedum. It's always, I always perceive that sedum kind of started the main sort of green roof movement and now it's nice to see that actually, actually fully biodiverse roofs. Much more established plants are actually becoming more of the norm and people are sort of less scared, I guess, to put something that has a greater soil depth and is perhaps a bit less controllable than sedum is because sedum can just be sort of set to the position where it is and it doesn't grow and go crazy and you don't have to maintain it and people people don't feel like they're going to burn later on with having to maintain something, I guess. 
Well, I'm, I'm not too sure about that because, as I say, the original German green roofs prior to 1984 were mainly wildflowers, but it was the, the use of a drainage board that changed that. But I think the context is, and again, I don't want to sound too rude here, but, um, you know, a sedum, a sedum blanket system is a living system, but what it, it looks like a product. Mm. It looks inanimate. And I think there's a culture within, whether it's through architectural training, I always say to people, look, the construction industry is based upon a brick. You know, a brick is a consistent material that does what it does for as long as it's in a wall. That is what architecture and building is about. A living system is very hard to comprehend if you are a product-based industry. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, even when, you know, we get into the technicals, if you're doing a lightweight system, well, it looks good when it's installed, but probably in three years' time, it's not going to look very good because the focus is make it light, not how is it going to live. And that's why I keep saying, well, you got, I'm, I'm trying to say, if we look at what the functionality of that roof is over its 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, we need to be looking at what that vegetation is and how that vegetation can sustain itself, especially with climate change. And that's where, and it's really nice that you're saying that, you know, the biodiverse thing in the UK is much, much more. Probably, I think I can claim a lot of credit for that, uh, pushing the biodiversity thing. But it is, but it's still a fight because there's this product mentality. I need a product. And to be fair to the green roof industry, their their clients are not the planning authority. Their clients are the architects and the developer. The planning authority of London Borough Lewisham, which we're in, was one of the first to really push this planning condition for biodiversity. You know, they're still having to work really, really hard to make sure that biodiverse green roofs are delivered in Lewisham because they get products just... That's that's the mentality. Well, I suppose it could be a hangover from because it's part of the building. I guess there might be more of a mentality that it's oh, you can just spec a different kind of roof thing rather than seeing it as an extension of the landscaping strategy done by the landscape yeah. designer or the landscape architect. It's sort of seen as separate from that, whereas actually it needs to be seen as part of the same thing. And whereas like, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to pick that spec of garden, but you can have a landscape designer and they come in and they. Yeah. Set out a strategy and all this kind of thing. But, but because I guess because it's part of the building, it might be seen more, be more liable to be being seen as something that can just be specified rather than actually sort of designed properly. Well, to be honest, once it's once it's designed and specified, and this this is part of what you said, it's out of sight, out of mind, nobody cares. Well, but if it's not delivering biodiversity as well as it could then it hasn't delivered its function. And so that's where the the problem lies is there's no respect for it. I think it's a word of respect for it. And, you know, I mean, it's a nightmare because I, you know, I've written most of the guidance and I've written most of the planning conditions, you know, I have actually done it. And I have made, and I've always put my hands up, I, I've made a, quite a few mistakes, you know, the brown roof idea. People still say to me, Dusty, obviously you've never heard of a brown roof. I got well, the brown roof was the, and you'll find it in a lot of planning conditions all over the country now, the brown roof was this idea, 
way back in 1997, everybody said green roofs are too expensive. We were trying to re-replicate brownfield um, habitat. So we went, right, yeah, well, you just put some crushed concrete and brick up there and let the plants come because that's what ecologists do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the original first brown roof, and there is there's kind of a segue story to to the architects. I don't have to name them because I think most people know who they are. But um, um, the La Barne Dance Centre, which won a Sterling Prize, it had the first brown roof on it, and it's a mile away. And I've been visiting it. I haven't been able to visit the last two years. So I've been visiting that since it opened in 2002. So that was the first roof that was put up and we went, let the plants come. But in 2000, I went to Switzerland and met this guy, Dr. Stefan Manarsson, and he said, that's wrong. (laughs) If you don't put the plants in, the only plants that come are the plants you don't want on a roof. Mm. Budlia, which is very harmful. But we were so successful in promoting the brown roof world term that, you know, the Olympics had a target for brown roofs. And all the way up to 2012, I was going, you know, free advice. So, you know, you don't want a brown roof. You want a biodiverse green roof. And I still get people lecturing me about brown roofs. And I kind of roll my eyes. And eventually I said, look, I did invent the term with three other geezers, you know. But that's interesting because, again, it's like, that's become embedded in a lot of processes. So Camden still have a brown or living roof planning condition. And I'm talking with Camden saying, look, you've got to change it because a brown roof has become an excuse for whoever to put whatever they like up and nobody cares. And there's a few technical things like Greenwich, Warborough Greenwich, they insist on, I just wrote a report for Greenwich. I wrote I wrote everything for them in 2011 and I didn't specify plug plants. And they said, no, it has to have plug plants. The green roofing industry hates plug plants. These are little plugs you plant into the soil. A, it takes a long time. And B, the birds just steal them. Now, it's a good idea if you're me, you know, I get some something happening straight away rather than waiting for the seeds to come up. It's just a dumb idea. No, no, no. You have to have, you know, I was looking at something from Camden again yesterday, 15, 12 to 15 spe- species of plugs planted. And I'm going, oh, yeah, I wrote that about 2008. And I'm, I want to go to all the birds. I said, like, can we just take that out? Because it's just, it's a waste of money. It's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it's funny when you do these things and then you learn and it's very difficult to change things, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Give a particular No, it doesn't. Any, you know, ecologists, some ecologists, or you know, people who, it's not. Well, you know, nature conservationists. You know, like oh, we're just, we, you know, 
there's a you know a brownfield site we just let nature colonize it and you go yeah it's going to be colonized in Budlia. yeah it's going to be colonized in Budlia. oh yeah yeah Budlia is everywhere in london yeah i mean i've got to do this this is a bug, bugbear of mine there's a down in deptford you know beautiful wildflower meadow area created part of planning condition and the landscape architects go and plant Budlia. and you just go why it's now taking over the wildflower area yeah, anybody in who knows their salt in the nature world would go, it's a pernicious weed. There was a guy in the 70s who made it really famous as the butterfly bush. No, it's the caterpillar killer because it kills all the food plants. Yeah. yeah. It and it's it, nicer than a sort of scrub grassland yeah. or something like that. Well, go and look at it when it's not in flower. It's one of the ugliest things in the world. You know, I mean, it really is ugly. Yeah. But to, to, so what we can do, it, it's like taking that romantic idea and it's a, and it still pervades sort of my sector is what we need to do when we build a roof where it's an art, it's very clear to me, it's an artificial Habitat. We are creating this. Now, what we have to do with that, if it's specifically for biodiversity, is say, how can we create that in an appropriate way to the eco region that ensures that we don't get pernicious weeds in like Budlia, gets the right sort of um, plant community there, which is right for the invertebrate community, which is then, you know, all the way up the chain but also allows things to come that we don't know what's going to come. So it's been in the press all the last couple of months at Namura, the last month or so. Namura, which is this bank, and there's, I wouldn't mind segueing back to Namura actually at some point. There's a guy who goes up there, he's very, very knowledgeable, finds this smooth flowered um, tongue orchid. It's only been found in the United Kingdom once. It was in Cornwall about 10, 15 years ago and it's gone. The nearest place you find it is south, south, southern France, Iberia. How the hell did it get here? Well, I'm pretty sure it was some kind of freak wave, you know, heat waves, but it's there. Now, the fact that that roof's there has allowed it to turn up. That's a fantastic story. The BBC want to get up there, blah, blah, blah. Whether it stays there forever, who knows, you know. But because that roof... A has somebody who's observing it all the time and it's a solar green roof, but also what Namura have done and they're working with a charity and I like to celebrate them. And this is what I think we need more of is a, as a big company, they're engaging with the local community who are a gardening community that have been helping improve the biodiversity of this green roof because it was pretty boring green roof. And in doing that, this, thing has turned up and quite a few interesting bees actually but they're using the green roof with the charity to get young people to come to the bank and then they're getting them to go and meet the accountants the investors blah, blah, blah. and then some of them hopefully will get jobs in your mirror and you go like we're using this green roof as a tool on a multi-level so that green roof has got respect you know they're respecting it half the time nobody gives a damn yeah. The spec it, throw it up, and who cares? Well, yeah, I guess this comes down to education and accessibility on a practical level, doesn't it? Like, yeah. Like, one of the things that particularly annoys me is the lack of scientific engagement in architectural education or scientific knowledge. And I think, especially these days, biology is probably the primary 
relevant science, critical structure, you know, you don't know much about physics. Um, but if, like, in every architectural education course should include a significant amount of biology and ecology and knowledge of actually what plants are, are what and where they go and what perfumes do, what environments, even if not on a massively technical level. Yeah, I mean, I think. I was I was did this thing for Reba the other night, you know. I brought this up at the end, you know. I I, I read this with joy. I can't remember how I got hold of it. The Victoria University in British Columbia on Victoria Island, the engineering department says it is mandatory you take a two two month course on biodiversity. And I just went engineers learning about biodiversity, and so the head of this department saying, "No, we are people who design things." Our job is to design civil engineers' job is to design roads, is to design pipe work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that has an impact on biodiversity. So we as engineers need to understand it. Doesn't mean that they become like fully qualified, you know, biodiversity nuts like me, but they understand the implication. And obviously within civil engineering now, when you look at the suds train and you know how you manage stormwater through the environment. That is a way to create artificial natural spaces. And I'm going to call them artificial because they're man-made, you know. But most, most spaces are, well, so-called natural spaces in this country are man-made. Like our sort of countryside and most of our national parks are all effectively man-made landscapes. Yeah, that's why, that, well, I mean, I could, we could have a whole historical, there's nothing in the United Kingdom that hasn't actually been managed by human beings. Yeah. Maybe the Cairngorms, but even the Cairngorms has been impacted on by human beings. But when I say man-made artificial, I'm kind of talking about the built environment to make that differentiation because my, my community, like the nature nuts, want it all to be natural. And you go, hang on a minute, what we can do here, because we are, you know, managing this process, we can take strategic decisions that can have a positive impact. So when I first started doing all the green roofs, you know, for all these brownfield sites, I had people up in Birmingham going, oh, you're selling out to the developers. I'm going, look, they're going to develop. What I'm trying to do is get something happening on those buildings that is positive. So if you go to the Greenwich Peninsula now, now Greenwich Peninsula in 1997, because I did a survey of it, was just one great big wasteland. Fantastic wildlife on it, you know. There is now only about two or three small pockets of brownfield land on the peninsula. Nearly 70% of the buildings have green roofs for biodiversity. To me, that's a really important story. Cities are about regeneration. Yeah, I, I think maybe we can get into this now to segue to that. Is that I, I imagine on the other dogs, most of the buildings going up a high story or fairly multi story buildings. Yeah. Um, certainly in the north end, they're very, very tall buildings. How effective in terms of actually creating a, a contiguous ecosystem is it in having? green roof, even if it's the entirety of a, of a block that's, I don't know, 30 metres by 30 metres on a tower. If that space at the top of that tower is a green roof, and a very good green roof, and even if that's the case on every single one of those towers in an area, how effective are those in creating a contiguous and effective ecosystem in that area if they're so separate from each other? 
Well, we have to deal with two issues there. First of all, there's ecological networking, which is the hedgehog principle that the hedgehog can go everywhere. Well, that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's not going to happen on a roof. But I was, I was, I found a new way to explain this. When I, when I first went to Switzerland to meet this Bernice and I, Dr. Bernice and I, went off to to a place to find a special bird, actually, a wall creeper for anybody who's a bird watcher. So I ended up in the R Gorge, and the R is a river. And this gorge is a really narrow gorge. It's about as wide as this room, yeah? And I remember watching a blackbird taking a drink in the River R, then flying 450 metres up to the top of the gorge. Now, why that's relevant is a tall building is a problem for a human being. So when I put got a green roof put up on Barclays HQ, which is one Churchill place over in in that area, you've the Canary Wharf area. People used to say to me, oh, Dusty, how are the, how, how the bees going to get out there? I said, they're going to take the lift. And for a moment, but the great thing about it, for a moment, people believed me for that fraction of a second. I said, they're going to fly. And then I've still got bee experts saying to me, oh, it'll be too windy up there. Oh, and you go like, right, look, it's 180 metres high. Now, if you're on a road and there was a wildflower area 180 metres away at ground level, nobody would consider that a problem. So by the time you've done the hypotenuse, yeah, it's 220 metres, yeah, to if you flew in a diagonal, yeah, for a B. 220 metres is nothing. And Canary Wharf is lower than where I'm sitting now. You know, we are higher than, than all the buildings at Canary Wharf. What we do is we look at Canary Wharf and go, that's a massive problem for wildlife. And you go, look. If you put a green roof on every single one of those buildings at 12 storey, 17 storey, 32 storey, 24 storey, you will have a habitat, but that habitat will be different. So when you go to the Table Mountain in Venezuela, which is quite famous, David Attenborough went up there, you know, it's this Table Mountain. Up there, they've got really, really interesting stuff that you don't find anywhere else in the world. And if you go to Utah and go on top of the Table Mountains there, there is vegetation and soil there, which actually is similar to ground level. Terrestrial beasts can't get up there. So there will, it's not be a complete ecosystem. But if it's a functioning ecosystem, and also it's doing all the other things, cooling, stormwater, blah, 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 that is good ecosystem services. So I've been asked to talk about how they might be things might be creating an ecological network in one neighbourhood in London, all these green rooms. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it. We're using a ground-based ecological term for something that cannot be done at roof level. On the tall buildings, how much does wind come into it? So it must be, you must have to select the right plants to go on the right buildings. Like, one of them I wanted to ask you about was the towers in Milan with the trees on oh. every surface. Yeah. And, and the appropriateness or otherwise of that. And maybe we can tie in, go, go from the sort of effect of wind on plant and ecosystem selection on, a, on one of the dog towers. And what, what is the sort of answer to that question? And then how does that tie in? All right, so I'll go from Canary Wharf to to the Bosco Verticale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, 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 because uh, I've been to the Bosco and I know the tree person very well, Lara Gassi, is a very good friend of mine. Um, first of all, when we before the green roof was installed on one Churchill Place, everybody went wind. We had all these wind consultants, we all this, and I was going like, it's counterintuitive. The assumption is. So we had to have all this erosion stuff and all this technical stuff, and the green roof was installed, and we stood up there, and we went, it's windier downstairs than it is windier here. And I used to go and sit up there nearly three or four times a week, and you'd be, you know, leaning into the wind down in, you know, basically Chicago, Windy City, Canary Wharf, and you'd be up on the roof and you'd be going, it's not as windy. So carrying on that, we was involved in a development elsewhere in Tower Hamlets where there's this quite uncommon butterfly called a small blue. And um, everybody's, you know, people f- not from the developer were going, well, this small blue, no, no, it's too windy on roofs for small blue. So I contacted a friend of mine, Dr. Dan Danaher, who does the biosphere down in Brighton. And he builds these chalk banks for butterflies. So I said, Dan, I said, right, okay, this is the issue. I said, right. Have you built a chalk bank on the top of the South Downs and do the butterflies come? He said, Dusty, I put one on top of Vardine. If a southwesterly gale is blowing in there, it'd be worse than on a roof in Canary Wharf, yeah? They come. Again, we don't worry about thinking about the South Downs and the small blue butterfly. What, what we do worry about is when we see a building. And it's what, it, what we do is we perceive our problem and perceive that nature's going to have the same problem. Yeah, because I suppose we would say, I suppose the obvious counter-argument is, oh, well, that's part of a contiguous landscape, yeah. but it's all, it feeds off, yes, it's high elevation, but it feeds off into a rolling countryside on one side. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the green roof is sort of isolated on a building, therefore one has easy access to wildlife and the other one doesn't. But if that's not relevant for flying creatures, and then it's sort of, I say, it's a perceptual problem on our part, isn't it? Yeah. So you said the hedgehog principle doesn't work at roof level, quite obviously. But he also said the small blue, if you put something up six to ten miles away, they will find it. Now, obviously, the reason they find it is they are very, very sensitive to the smell of its food plant. So if you've got a food plant on top of a building, you know, in Tower Hamlets, and they're nearby, they will get there. Um, and so what we to, to say to tie that up and then get to the Bosco the, the whole principle of what we've been trying to do is put the right habitat in get the right plants in and let nature come and what nature comes is good if you don't put the right plants in and you get the wrong nature i.e. the weeds then you've got problems. Now, going to the Bosco, the Bosco, you know, is a very interesting project because, I mean, A, it looks stunning. Let's be quite frank. You know, I don't tend not to do architecture. I don't look at outsides of buildings because I'm... I've seen it since it's... I haven't seen a, a recent picture of it, so I don't know how it's developed since it was... It, it, I went there 2019 and Laura said, yeah, it's looking good. They've changed some of the trees. So what they did, it's far more sophisticated than comes across because everybody sees it. There's different tree species and different aspects and at different heights. And, and it is irrigated. 
the, the most interesting thing, just from, um, you know, in a way, a, a, an architectural real estate perspective, people own the flats. They do not own the balconies. The balconies are owned by the developer. And there's a very good reason for that because they get maintained by one maintenance crew. And that was a strategic decision at the start. You, you don't rent your balcony. You buy your flat and you have access to your balcony. But it is, you cannot change that. Yeah. So when I went, uh, Laura was saying to me, um, you know, people – People sit so on the in Milan in the winter, the top so many floors, they can get actually quite cold. So the tree species are specific trees that actually help with that winter insulation. But also in the summer, the top floors tend to be a lot hotter, you know, if it was a standard, you know, skyscraper. So again, the tree species, I think on the south side, are slightly different from the north side. And if I remember rightly, Lara said, well, we actually, in some of the areas, and it's sort of the boundary zones, like the 10th, between the 10th and the 7th floor, hypothetically, I can't remember. In the boundary zones, because lower down, it's a, there's a different temperature control that the trees are doing. They did actually get some of the tree species slightly wrong. So I think it was about three years in, they started to change some of the tree species. So they, they, they craned them out and moved them to the, to the west facing or the east facing. And they're constantly being monitored to see the temperatures being constantly monitored on all floors because it was designed to have impact on each floor in a different way or groups of floors, if I remember rightly. So when people see it, they think, oh, it's a bunch of trees. Isn't that great? You go, yeah, but it's a bunch of trees which each one is doing a function in the location it's in. That is what I call, you know, complex ecological design. Complex doesn't mean it's complicated. Complicated is a problem. Complexity is good. But what people do is you are at that level of sophistication, people say, oh, that's too complicated. You go, no, it's complex. But if you do that, you will make really very good living spaces for people. And she says to residents, right, well, okay, let's be quite frank, they're all millionaires, yeah. That they from from the perception of the residents, now Lara's involved in it, but I think this is I take it as face value, is it's been highly successful. They get people saying, We watching birds nest and blah blah blah, and you can see that and you feel sort of it's not a garden, you feel like you're connected to a bit of wilderness because it is quite, you know, it's not, it's not really very formal. You know, it does feel like you're in, you know, obviously it's only one row of trees, but you kind of feel like it's semi-natural. And, you, you know, when I was there, there were if, if people who know birds, I mean, there were black caps singing at every single bloody level. This is a warbler. I mean, and you can like, that's just great because you've got bird habitat on the vertical, you know. I think, I think from a biodiversity point of view, sort of thing is really good. Um, the other obvious criticism that you can ask is the sort of embodied carbon. Yeah. Because the amount of energy it takes to pump the water up constantly to irrigate it, plus the cost of the carbon, additional embodied carbon and the additional concrete to support the amount of weight of all those trees. 
I don't know whether that calculation has been done, but first of all, I know that all the water is pumped by um, solar panels which are on the roof. Nobody ever sees the solar panels on the roof, but there's actually solar panels on the roof. So, I, But again, you know, do if you were carbon, and I'm going to call it carbon fixated, you could say, well, actually, you know, that's that's not good. But it's not just about carbon. It's about all that temperature uh, balancing. It's about the water storage in the winter. It's about the biodiversity. It's about the human comfort and human experience. So one of the problems with just carbon counting is we miss all the other environmental processes. And, you know, they're designing about 20 now in China and um, there's a few going up in Switzerland. And I think they're looking at, how they design those balconies so that they can reduce yeah. it, you know? Because <laughs> the obvious benefit of that way of doing things is having, it's, it's sort of, you're taking rather than the surface area of the building footprint and replacing that for ground level, uh, roof level with an ecosystem of some kind, you're massively, you, you've massively increased the potential surface area by building a full tower. And why not, therefore, take maximum advantage of that and use all of the surface area through green walls in some way? And I would count that as effectively a green wall. Yeah, let's call it a green wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, then you sort of you get that contiguity of ecosystem if that's valuable to any species at all. I don't know whether it actually would make a difference or not. But all you also get the as you said the, the solar and the cooling side, yeah. the heating side, and the aesthetic value. Yeah. Of rather than so, say, imagine every tower in the Isle of Dogs was like that instead of being glass or fake brick or whatever it is. Yeah, that, that would be hugely psychologically beneficial to everyone who lived there. Yeah, they'd be looking at effectively a forest rather than yeah like large glass towers. Yeah, and also, you know, for me, as you know, using birds, but then there's all the bees and the, everything else is, you know, if all the towers at Canary Wharf were done in a way like the Bosco is with our with the appropriate cheese for this area, you'd have Oxley's Wood in Canary Wharf because, you know, the area, if you took all those towers and laid them flat, I mean, that would be like nearly, I bet you it's the size of the whole of the Isle of Dogs. You know, that's a, that's a woodland the size of the Isle of Dogs. If you take that view... Now, it, it would be what we would probably call a semi-natural woodland because it's not a natural woodland. But you go, nearly everything that you'd find at ground level uh, in a semi-natural woodland is potentially f could be found in that. Now, nature conservationists will go, oh, that, that can't be right because it's buildings because we ourselves get blocked at the environment. No, no, that can't happen. So when I, even when I put the green roofs first time, people say to me, no, no, nothing to go there. And you go like, well, there's all this stuff. If you put, we, sometimes we want to be God because we've done all our studies and everything like that. I go, look, look, I'm, I'm really somebody who just wants to promote nature. So my belief is put it in, let it come. Put it in as well as you can, you know, but, you know, we, there's still this thing all, it's a lost Eden. We've got to protect, go back to the lost Eden. I'm not interested in Eden. I'm not interested in, in what nature was like 500 years ago. I don't care. I want to know what nature's going to be like in 100 years' time. Yeah. Well, well let's segue to Green Walls. Since the, the, okay, uh, yeah. My perception of Green Walls at the moment, obviously they're gaining popularity, yeah. which is good. 
Um, as far as I can tell, almost all of them seem to be irrigated. Yeah. Not always successfully. Yeah. They're often just very small patches yep. of area on buildings. And they, as far as I can tell, they almost never include climbing plants. And this seems very odd to me, considering green walls have existed for hundreds of years in the forms of ivies and creepers and that kind of thing. What's your perception of the current status of green walls and what needs to change to make them progress yeah. better? We were. <laughs> well, I mean, historically, um, you know, green roofs first for me, green walls, yeah. The trouble with the green walls is, first of all, again, it's perceptual quality. It's all about horticultural bling. Now, I'm not so pro-green walls, primarily because the market is driven from a horticultural bling point of view. That's my problem with it. So the green warning companies will all be going, you know, wanting to say horrible things to me, you know. But, you know, my interest is what I can deliver to the sea, which is sustainable. So the two green walls that I have been directly involved with through certain processes in London, uh, Rubens at the Palace, which my colleague Gary Grant designed, identified the wall, he designed it. It was clear we're going to make that a sustainable urban drainage system. That is irrigated not by possible water. It is in irrigated by water that is collected from the roofs. Is it just gravity-fed or is it? Yeah, and gravity-fed, yeah. Well, there's some pumping to get to the top, yeah. So there's a cistern that um, I think it's floor three, which collects all the rainwater, and then it's, it's pushed around it, yeah. And they, that will be coming from a non-renewable source, I suspect, yeah. I can't remember technically. The only time they've had to use possible water was in the drought of 2019, which was the worst drought we've ever had. The other route wall, which is the Fair Street Green Wall near the um, Mayor's office in London, is again, there's these, it's, a, it's a social housing, you know, it used to be Southwark housing, and there's all these pitched roofs, which are above it, and they all drain into a panel at the rear that irrigate that wall. The only time it's never used uh, rainwater was in 2019, and it did die because it was assumed. Yeah, it was a terrible drought, to be quite frank. So from my perspective, if a green wall is going up and it's not used, it's not connected to the sustainable urban drainage system, it's horticultural bleak. Now, I know even my colleague Gary might find that. I just go like, it's just not right. I can only know of two others that are vertical rain gardens. There's two I know now. There's one in Portland, and I think there's now one in Seattle. My view is if they are not vertical rain gardens, I'm not too sure what the what it's about. By vertical rain garden, you mean purely fed by the rainwater? Yeah, yeah. And, and may, would that include potentially... Irrigating during extremely hot summers. Yeah, well, you'd then you'd always, you know, just as a matter of course, you will have to have a connection to a potable source in case of a extreme heat wave. Now, I know there's a lot of work going on in the northwest of uh, the states on looking at how they can essentially be vertical rain gardens, because there's a lot more suds legislation in the United States of America at city level because of polluted rivers. To me, that's where it needs to go. But, you know, I'm going to segue back to Ruse because this that issue is the same. 
what happens when we, as I understand it, you tell me wrong because you're an architect, you know, like, right, before I even get to the roof, everybody decided where the water's going. That is decided at a very early stage. The most frustrating thing for somebody who is trying to deliver green infrastructure is I want to decide where the water goes. Now, I've just, I did, earlier in the year, I did this thing for Camden. I went up to this um, 1960s tower block, which got a raised podium, and underneath it's a car park, yeah? And it's really got me thinking about this, because, you know, like, I, they want to, they got some funding maybe to turn it into, you know, a park, you know? And so I just created all these rain gardens on top of it, and I said, look, if this was, if I could design this block now, I would put all the drainage outlets in completely different places. So when I get given a green roof by an architect specified for biodiversity, I'm going like, if I could decide where the outlets were, I can make a really good green roof. But actually, the green roof is just dressing. So what we should be saying is vegetation on buildings in cities are primarily function. Its primary function is storing water and then biodiversity. And how does that affect the amount of downpipes we need inside the bloody building. That's already decided for by people are far cleverer than me. And it frustrates me because I go, if I had that water, I could decide how that water moves across the roof, where it could be stored on the roof and where it leaves the roof and goes to the next floor, does something on that floor, goes to the next floor, does something on that floor, goes to the ground and does something at ground level. No, straight down. Off you go. Done deal. That is where we're not doing that. I would call that complexity. Nobody wants to do that. No, you always put a down. We, we've got four outlets on the roof, four downpipes. Off it goes to the sewage system. That is decided probably yeah. right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also that's about early engagement of development <coughs> consultants in the project, isn't it? And to, to give the RIBA some credit, they've changed the um, final work recently to bring more sustainability <coughs> earlier on into the, the um, plan of work yeah. which is good but it's good if people act on it but if you just ignore it and still don't employ your consultants until stage four you're like it's not going to help because as you say all those decisions have already been made so yeah I think that's sort of takes a bit of agency on behalf of architects. To no, I mean, if, if I'm not going to be up to speed on what Reba does because I'm, I'm, I'm not really up to speed on what it does, but if they're doing that, it's great. And I'm not looking for it. But I'd say to any architect, if you've got a really com a complex development, get somebody like me, even before you get any of the drainage people in. So we can have a conversation. Plumbing with plants is the future, is, is a way to put a, put a little well, badge on that. Do you think it would be possible to have, let's say, every single wall surface and every single roof surface surface um, populated with uh, vegetation, purely fed by rain gardens and only ever by rain and only ever topped up in the worst summers without dying? Yeah. Uh... Yes and no, because it depends what that vegetation is and, you know, how much water can be generated. So if you've got a roof covered with, you know, a good biodiversity green roof, you're only going to get about 50% of the rainwater that could leave that roof, yeah? 
So, you know, there's going to be caveats there, but there's potentially that you could um, irrigate a good proportion of it, but you probably might need some. Um, but then you go, right, okay, where's all the condenser water going? Now, people look at me you know, go like, what do you mean? I said, like, air conditioning fans produce a huge amount of water. I said, oh, do they? I said, yeah, I know this because I once went onto a roof in Istanbul in August and it was green down the middle and we realised that they had, the guy said, well, somebody's just come to mend the air conditioning units on the roof and hasn't reconnected the pipe. So you're going, right, okay, there's a lot of water we waste inside a building. Yeah, I guess that's sort of the, the upside of uh, sort of climate change is if we start having to install air conditioning everywhere, which I suppose already exists on all of the large... Catalogs, but if suddenly everybody needs an air conditioning unit on their house because it gets to 40 degrees in the summers, then there's going to be a lot of water spewing out. Yeah, well, I just asked to do a quick sketch design for a school in Ealing uh, that's having a new block. And I'm not blaming anyone, but just just think about this to 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 you people, to architects. So what happened here is it's been designed by some architects at Ealing Council, and fair enough, they're just doing a kind of thing, whatever. So the way it is, it's east-west. They've got the chillers on the west side. They've got the roof light in the middle, and then they've got the, the solar panels on, on, on the west side, right? That's all fine, yeah? But I've changed it because I've put the chillers at the north side. Now, there's a really good reason why I've done that. Because every time I go and I say to a facilities manager, I said, well, actually, technically, a green roof produces cool air. And they say, all right, okay, I want cool air going into my air conditioning fans. Because if cool air goes into my air conditioning fans, they don't work as hard, which means I have to replace them so often. Now, our prevailing winds, all right, this year has been unique because we've had easterly winds. Our prevailing winds are from the southwest. So chillers on a green roof should always be in the northeast corner. Never happens because nobody's again the green roof. Yeah, because the green roof is just for that nature stuff. So again, what I'm trying to do with uh, UCL is to look at some research about how vegetation on a roof or even a ground level affects the performance of an air conditioning unit. Yeah. And people say to me already, they're saying to me, "Oh well, that you know, that's that, that's not actually that interesting." I go like, "It's significantly like even if it only." Does it by a 20% or 5%? Every little bit counts when we're fighting climate change. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, in terms of retrofitting, I know you work a lot on lots of kinds of buildings, but especially large buildings. Yeah. If you're talking about your standard two, three bedroom house, two stories, a pitch roof, and say you're a person who owns a house like that and you want to retrofit your house, with a green roof, but it's got standard roof structure, it's got standard clay tiles, slate tiles, and I don't know, you're in a conservation area and you can't change everything massively. Mm. How how do you, maybe not the last point, but it just practically in terms of you've got a standard house with standard roof, yeah, yeah. standard roof construction, how do you go about persuading everyone, but practically how would you do it? And also how do you go about persuading everyone who owns houses like this across the country to do that sort of thing? And, and practically how do you do it? Do you have to replace the whole roof structure? 
I suspect having done a bit of tiling in my life, because I have done some tiling in my life, uh, Kemp peg tiles when I was a teenager, you know, the roof rafters would have to be significantly upgraded. You'd need to plywood board it because you need your bracing um, and then you need it waterproofed. In Germany, they used to use this really interesting system. They don't use it very often now. It's kind of like a whole bunch of straw, which has turned into this kind of long thing. And then they'd plant there's then they plant a blanket on top of it, and then you just throw it over the pitch. You know, they used to do this. I don't, don't think they do it so much now. And it did work quite well. And you occasionally see them in, especially in Bad Württemberg. But there's a new Dutch tile that's come out, which I'm not convinced about. I mean, it's been all over LinkedIn. It's like a little. Um, type of thing, yeah. If I was really honest, I'm not interested in pitched roofs. It, it, they're generally in parts of the town where they're relatively peri-urban. You know, it's very, very few areas of central cities where there's a lot of pitched roofs. And I'm more interested in the flat roofs in the middle of cities or in the middle of town centres, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, um, some of those Georgian, I spent a lot of time looking at roofs on Google, so I do, I do kind of know some of those Georgian structures have like a, a meter and a half around the, the 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 pitch, which will be there. You just go, well, you just, yeah, yeah, you just go, well, just green up your meter and a half, you know. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, again, I go like, well, you know, if you're in Chelsea and Kensington, you know, they've got such a rich array of gardens and green green space that, you know, is it, you know, is the money better used elsewhere to uh, uh, to do in North Kensington, maybe, in the Royal Borough of Chelsea and Kensington? You've got North Kensington, there's a lot of social housing out there, it's got a lot of flat roofs. You go, that's where you put your money, you know, because that's where you're going to have the biggest impact. You know, from from a climate perspective, a sustainable urban drainage perspective, and a biodiversity perspective, greening up North Kensington is more appropriate than greening up um, Earl's Court, um, you know, Ch- Chelsea itself, because there's a rich array of gardens there. Mm. You know? Yeah, I suppose as, as yeah. you get more suburban, I suppose the yeah, percentage yeah. of the sort of overall land surface or, or surface from a plant yeah. perspective that's covered yeah. by roofs decreases, that becomes less worth yeah. doing from a yeah, I mean, the easiest thing to do, whether you could do that in a conservation zone in Chelsea, is you know, take the pitch off, make it flat, and green it. You know, well, this is why I'm sort of yeah. trying to promote climbing plants a bit more. Oh, we didn't talk about climbing plants, so go yeah. back to climbing, yeah, 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 because yeah, it's it seems to me that that sort of it solves the the irrigation problem because they're in the ground. So and if they're able to survive in the yeah. ground yeah. in England and climb up whatever tree in the natural environment is, they're gonna be able to survive as they have many places, going up walls and wherever. Um, and they require almost no installation cost at all, basically. 
Well, okay. Well, yeah. Give me your next point. I'll see. You know, I don't. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, first of all, I, I, I don't. We got segued away from green walls. I don't actually have a problem with these modular green walls, which don't have climbing plants. The trouble is, most of the time, they're putting in a lot of non-native, and they claim that they can't put native in. Well, that's nonsense. That's it's just easy. The trouble is with the modular as well, they're very, very expensive. But the thing is, they give you this instant bling. With the climbing plants, again, at this school that I'm, I've been asked to give some advice on, you know, the idea they've got a very, very large west-facing wall um, and they're going to put climbing plants up there. And, and I said, yeah, it's a good idea. Again, what you will do is we will get the downpipe to go into a rain garden, which the climbing plants will be in because that's what you want. And they want them all along the fence at the front. And I go, we will take all the water from the roofs, make metal gullies across the car park. Cars can go across it, you know, and we will feed that water into essentially a rain or a soak place, you know. But also when you have um, a west-facing wall with a flat roof on top, there are plants that grow downwards. So you have plants that grow downwards and you have plants that grow upwards. Now, it'll probably take five years to get complete coverage, but that's a good idea. Now, there is actually a, a big shopping centre in uh, Basel, I know, called Stucky. And you can Google it, yeah? And the side, they've done that. So you've got this staircase that runs up the fire escape, yeah? And it's got plants growing down and plants growing up. Oh, I get what you mean, yeah. yeah. The Maybe they did that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's seven or eight stories, so it's quite yeah. tall, you know. Yeah. Well, that, I'm massively in favour of hanging plants like that. Yeah. They grow downwards. yeah. The thing that's always bothered me, I don't know if there's a way around this, is, isn't, is, am I right in saying that the reason why lots of green roofs have areas of gravel around the outside is because of the fire building regulations, but you need the space between where the firewood... It's 500 millimetres. ...and the start of anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there a way to, and obviously if you had a hanging plant that was designed to hang over the side, that would not be applicable. Is there a way around that? Um, I, 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 yes, there is a way around that. And I would go, my instincts on that is, if because what you'd have to do with those climbing plants and what they did at Stucky is right, so you'd have to have your 500 mil shingle perimeter, which the Swiss would go, don't need it, yeah. You would have to have relatively deep substrate there for those climbing plants that go down. And you'd probably have some kind of wire structure that takes them to the wall so they can't grow across the shingle. The shingle is originally, is, is, and it's in the, the fire regular, um, the document that we worked with the uh, Department for Communities and Local Government back in 2013. As again, I don't disagree with everything in the code, yeah, but what that 500 mil is to essentially make the green roof separate from the building because of fire. And there's a lot going on at the moment, and we, you know why, and therefore we, we, we have to respect those processes. Um, but there is a way around that. 
or you put the uh, the plants that are going to go down into uh, some kind of planter, and then you have the 500 mil shingle perimeter on the side of the planter, but then you've got to get the water to be able to get into the planter, but that's, that's plumbing. And plumbing is very, very important because I said to you plumbing with plants is if we consider everything that goes in on a building is about plumbing and we can connect all the plumbing, it's really, really quite simple because plumbing is actually, you know, a, a master trade. But when you just know where the water is going and you can get the water where it needs to go, fine. So plumbing with plants. So you hang the, the hanging plants effectively on the top of the wall? No, you could have a parapet, then the planter. If you've got the 500 mil shingle perimeter between a planter, you know, a plastic planter box or a wood planter box and the green roof, that would still be compliant, I, I think. I don't think so because of the fire regular. Now, I don't always agree with the code. Well, that's the obvious barrier that sort of Swiss wildflower model, which I think is so fantastic, where you have wildflower rooms right up to the edge and overflowing the edge. Which is brilliant. And there's, you know, what I think is a semi-fire rate rule. You could mitigate that in other ways, probably. <laughs> well, I, you know, because I'm a, I'm a grow board member, so I have to be careful what I say. With the code says you have to have 500 million, you have to have it. As I say, I don't always agree, which is probably implying that I, I've, you know. Yeah. Well, also, aesthetically, I think it looks terrible. So it looks like you're... Rather than having your fire diverse areas and as part of the architecture, it looks like you've got this thing in the middle and it's sort of all neatly framed and it's, it has this nice neat bit around the edge. And you're like, oh, we only can't have any plants intruding into our nice neat shingle border. And it doesn't, it doesn't have that sort of proper. Well, I guess even worse than that, mate. And then they, oh, we, we're going to have to have a nice aluminium bit of trim to make sure that the line is perfect. You go like, the Swiss would go, why are you wasting money on aluminium trim? It doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then you go like, oh, God, you know, somebody makes aluminium trim and, you know, I'll get told off for that one as well. But you just go, it's nuts. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I get what you're saying, but, you know, there is um, – there are some compliances that you go, right, okay, I'll, I'll grin and bear it because I'll grin and bear it. Um but you know what's what it also says is you know every every I can't remember the exact meters I think it's about every ten meters of your very very big roof every ten minutes you just have a, a a fire break across yeah but again you know again I want to plumb with plants you know so when we design small scale green roofs where we you know we can do what we want to do is you know I don't particularly like drainage boards sorry okay so. If you've got a completely flat roof, you can do this one meter or 500 mil uh, shingle as a dry riverbed and it can meander through the roof to the outlet. And we've done this and they actually work really, really well from a visual point of view because what happens when you get a brown off, you know, if you do get a brown off, you're not looking at an Indian cricket pitch, you're looking at a series of mounds with these dry riverbeds in. And also there are plants which can grow in these dry riverbeds and it creates a kind of landscape. But what do we do? Is like biodiverse green roofs, right? 
Like all the same, blah, blah, blah. And, and I keep saying to people, let's be a bit creative here. The trouble is often when I get these plans that I have to look at and the landscape architects have been over-creative because, you know, there are extensive green roof substrate. You've got shingle, you've got some logs and you've got some sand mounds. Right, what we want to do is have some of the shingle, you know, do whatever the shingle, yeah, blah, 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 you know. And if you're looking over a roof like that, that is really interesting. It gives it structure. Now, if it's a... Over, you know, I, you know, I, you know, you might do all these during the Olympics. Everything was stripes. You know, everybody had to do stripes. That was what was vogue during the Olympics. My mate Gary worked on it. Said, "Oh, stripes again today. We're doing biodiversity by stripes." You know, because that was the geometry of the day. You know, but you know, you can. I've always said to designers, you know, you, these are the things you can do. You know, make it make interesting, organic looking landscapes. You know, you look at some of those photographs from the satellites of how rivers and deltas move. You can like, look, they look great. Yeah. There's an organicness there. And I think we can be far more interesting about how we design biodiverse great roofs. Mm. And the other thing while I'm on it, because I think this is really important, it's completely off topic. One of the things over the last four years I've been really, really getting my getting angry about, and I've never written any guidance that said anything but biodiverse green roofs are only for biodiversity well the planners say no no nobody's allowed on those roofs they're for biodiversity and i'm going hang on a minute you know i mean this is just nuts if you want to you know in kidbrook village you know can't you go up the stairs there's some paving there can't you sit on a deck chair and just look at it and if we could look at it we might take better care of it so there's these thousands of square meters of roofs on uh, across. There's about 2.5 million. So let's say there's um, 1.8 million square meters of green roofs that probably are for biodiversity. There's 1.8 million square meters of, of which people could sit by. You know, we don't mind them walking on Black Eve, which is you know a very very important nature conservation site in London. But to go on a roof, no, 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 no. You know, they might upset the nature. You're going, you know, give us a break. You know, because they're only going to go there up in the morning or in, you know. Yeah, we always yeah. see in, the, in concept renderings and competition renderings, you see like someone photoshopping a horse and a Kingsley <laughs> family on top of the roof, like amongst the meadow and thing, and yeah. like a deer poking its head through the window or something like that. In reality, you see the building and there's like a little wire fence that says, like, yeah. walk on the roof or anything like this. Or, yeah. or they've allowed you to walk on the roof and they've put a meter high railing around the edge because they have to, because they technically you can go on the roof or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you have to do all that compliance stuff, but you know, what, worries me then is because the, the, there's a lot of these in Berlin actually on social housing actually in the east Berlin which they've retrofitted after the wall came down the, they have a little metal um, um, you know chain fence yeah and there's this little regulation that says right first of all no dogs on the green roof and there's a big sign of poo yeah right and said so like then it says you can sunbathe on the green roof but sunbathe in a different place every day Right, because then you'd have a negative impact on the meadow, yeah? This is just a standard green roof with wildflowers. If, as soon as people are accessible to a green roof, it's got to be high in landscape. You go, know, why can't they just sit and look at a meadow? Yeah. And it's this cultural thing. Oh, this, 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 this... Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I'm quite open. If there's a paved area and there's a barbecue unit, there's some benches and a mother with her child wants to go and sit out there and look at, look over the skyline and see all this wildlife, yeah, paving, that's kind of cool. I, I don't mind. But can she sit by the wild meadow? Or if she can do that, oh, let's have our bamboo and our... Uh, and all this, you know, high-end landscape. No, no, no. People should just be able to look at meadows. 
We don't need to do... But, you know, the culture is as soon as it's accessible visually or physically, well, it's got to be heavily designed. And you go like... Formalised. Formalised, yeah. That just comes into the general tendency of people to want to even things up all the time rather than... Which is understandable rather than having the sort of wild, the, the messiness of, of nature effectively growing up. Yeah, well, I, but that's the problem because that's what we do in cities. But when I do these tours to these biodiverse green roofs in normal years, there's one on 202 Bishopsgate. And the last time I did the tour in 2019, five of the people have worked in that office for 15 years and never been on that roof. And they all said to me, we would love to just come and sit here and have our sandwiches. Yeah. It looks like Dungeness. Now, Dungeness is all right in Dungeness, but Dungeness on a roof, yeah. as soon as people, people go, no, you can't have that because it's not modern or it's not neat. You go like, let people encounter nature. Mm. And, and it's a big bugbear for me because there's thousands of square metres of roofs which people could just sit by. Well, this is part of, yeah, I guess it's part of why I like green walls because you, can, you can't access it. Yeah. The most you can do is trim around the windows if something's growing too much. But like it's not, but you don't have the opportunity to mess it up. In, in a sort of overly formalizing way, in the way that humans like to. And you, that's why you get, like in Vancouver, there's a hotel that's completely covered in Virginia Creek. Like, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. an absolutely beautiful building. Um, and that's probably only like two or three plants or something, they're just really old. And that, that sort of strikes me as a much more resilient way of doing it than having, having very sort of delicate little plants with little micro hydroponic systems. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's a famous one at Point Hill, which is covered in Virginia creepers. It's famous around here, you know, and it's been there for 300 years. You kind of go like, you know. But, you know, I think there's always this desire. I'm not, you know, people people haven't got any patience. It takes time for Virginia creepers to, to take over a building, you know. Well, yeah, like this yeah. is why you couldn't just plant. You're going to plant plants up a wall anyway. Yeah. I don't know see why you can't plant a series of climbing plants up a wall. Yeah. And then each one only has to grow two metres rather than 20 metres. And you're going to yeah. get sort of more, more sustainable plants a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. And also it starts to be partially irrigated in somewhere or another, but that seems to be a better way of doing it than, than having, like I say, these delicate little systems. Yeah, I mean, the plants aren't you know, relatively robust. They just need a lot of water, that's all, you know, and... Um, so I don't mean, you know, I don't mean it's delicate yeah, as in like that. Um, but just on that climbing thing, I mean, it's interesting and it's segueing back to Ruse because 120 Fenchurch Street, which is open to the public in normal times without an appointment, I, it's not like the Sky Gardens where you have to book. It's free to go on. I was actually involved years ago, actually, in, in I was brought in to advise which company should win the landscape prior, you know, to do it, yeah? And it was done by Latson Partners. So when it first went in, people said, well, it's not very, very green dusty, is it? And they've got all these frames, haven't they? I said, yeah, because they're, they're frames for the wisteria. And it's going to take about 10 years for the wisteria to actually completely cover. But it's actually a really sensible design because actually that wisteria will last forever. Yeah. And, you know, it's got all its biodiversity benefits, blah, blah, blah. slowly does well you know it's the same with the green roofs you know seed them don't mat them yeah you know nature is better at deciding what it wants to do on a roof than us yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, my 
out of the garden philosophy is, is sort of throw as much things at, at the ground and see what grows in the same way you just yeah. throw things in the mud and see what the water people sticks. Yeah, I'm not. See, I, you know, I've got to do this, and I know I upset another bunch of people. You know, I do not believe. I've not seen ever. Uh, well, basically, there's a lot of architects spe- specifying wildflower turfs as biodiverse green roofs. Doesn't wildflower turf, but it's already grown. Pre-grown, turf. put it up. Doesn't work. But what they want is instant green. And I, you know, the where best green roofs are where you seed them, and that's where I get my prop. <laughs> Um, if anybody follows me on LinkedIn, I spent for, for 22 years, I spent the summer collecting seeds. I collect seeds from anywhere, you know, all sorts of places, all around South East London, Kent, because I'm from there. And these seeds, the last um, three years, most of the seeds have gone on to the far roof at IKEA, which is originally installed as brown roof. And fortunately, for whatever reasons, I'm allowed access to it. And it is now, I put it on LinkedIn and people say, that is a beautiful green roof. I've got people at IKEA saying, I will turn my garden into that. It was bare in 2018. It was semi-bare in 2019. It was three quarters bare in 2020. And it's nearly 80% covered in vegetation. That is seeds that I've collected. Now, I love doing that. But the point of it is, is to say to architects, get the seeds in, let the plants do what they want to do. Stop forcing it onto if. Well, because the, the architect wants the pretty photo as soon as the building's finished to go on their website and yeah. move on to the next project. Yeah. They don't want to have to wait for six months or four months for those seeds to establish themselves. But philosophically, what you've just described is they want their product, their photograph yeah. before they move on. What Everything that I'm involved in is about what is the process and what is the function. It's not what the product is. So a good building is a building that's designed to function for 40 years in terms of those green roofs. Yeah. If you put a pre-grown thing in there to get your photograph, you have not created an ecosystem services green roof, in my view. Now, I know I'm going to upset a lot of people in the green roof industry who do pre grow pre, pre-grown systems. I'm on record. Everybody knows that I'm not a fan of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every year, if not more, uh, as long as I'm alive, Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a very fashionable term now. And I know that I've read, I don't know if you've read Isabella Tree's book, Wilding, which is yeah. she's one of the net Hebrew ones. Net. Yeah. Um, what's your perception or perspective on the on rewilding as a sort of fashionable thing that's coming out and where, where you see it developing and integrating into your work and, and more generally? Well, I mean, 
I think I've been rewilding London for 23 years. So, you know, and I do. I know, I, and I, yeah, there's quite a few of us. So it's not just me, but most of my work has been about rewilding London. The, the issue, the interesting thing that came out of that Reaver event, actually, and I'm, there's Jan from Heal now, and, and it's it's not aimed at her. We, we had this conversation, but so I've been filming these bee wolves on these dry paths on Blackheath, which are made by human beings. And I've always been fascinated to challenge my own community that actually human beings are part of the ecology, ecological system. And so if I may quickly segue, because it's very important, the ecologists say, you know, when they put the wolves back into the Yosemite, yeah, when the Yosemite was founded, the first thing that happened, they kicked out the Shinonan, which is the indigenous tribe, yeah? So when they put the wolves back in, there are ecologists in the Yosemite saying there's only one thing that's missing from the Yosemite's eco- ecology, and that's the Shoshonan. But they were kicked out because humans were bad, right? You know, so we had this conversation. She said, "Well, they're only they're only doing that in the past, Dusty, because there's no big mammals wandering around the United Kingdom to create those kind of dry paths." And I was kind of like, yeah, "This is what we do. We go back to this lost Eden where there were bison roaming around the United Kingdom, or wolves, or lynx, or whatever. You know, which I'm all for." links being put back into the country because they have a good ecological function at killing deer. I don't want to put them back for some romantic notion yeah. of nonsense. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. So having links back is a really good idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, having, I don't know, bison wandering, I just kind of like, well, yeah, it, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They are, and I'm from there. I used to bird watch in Bleed Woods, but yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, as long as they serve an ecological function and they are useful to the ecosystem today and in the future, I'm fine about it. If it's actually about some romantic idea that we can get back to before the fossil fuel age, I'm going, and this is why I always have a conflict with my own um, sector. There's this trying to get back to some lost paradise. I'm not interested in the lost paradise. I'm interested in the paradise of the future. So rewilding for me, I think what they're doing at NEP is great and it's a rural context and I think it's fantastic and I'd love to go there one day. But rewilding in a city context will be slightly different. And we are always going to have cities. We're going to have more cities and more people are going to live in cities. And in a way, rewilding cities is actually far more important because it's where people are going to live. And I'm quite keen that the positive side of human beings as part of ecology is, is clocked. Coppicing is a very, very important thing in East Bleen Wood for the Heath Fertility. If you didn't have coppicing, you wouldn't have the Heath Fertility. That is a human activity. And I think sometimes in my sector, it's like, oh, you know, we're going to go back to some lost Eden. Not interested. So the rewilding thing has really got me thinking the last three days when I walk around Black Heath, you know, and Black Heath is essentially a man-made habitat. A lot of people think it's some retention of some lost paradise. No. No, it, it's yeah. well. The interesting part for me about, I mean, the, obviously the rural side of rewilding, but the countryside and that sort of separate subject. Yeah, and how we integrate it with intensive agriculture. But I think, from my point of view, on the urban side, if you can green enough spaces and enough, surf, I think, a bit more a surface area, and in a city you've got more surface area to work with because of buildings than you do in a, a rural yeah. context, because you've, because you've got walls eventually. 
that if you can green enough of that space, you're going to get a contiguous enough ecosystem that you'll get proper movement of species of probably not large mammals, maybe some, but you'll get at least large numbers of insects and birds and all that small mammals, maybe that kind of thing, that you will feel like there's actually active ecosystems and there will actually be active ecosystems um, sort of operating effectively in that urban space. And that, that's sort of the finished point from my perspective of what urban rewilding is. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of points I want to do, it's, and it's about rewilding uh, in the sense, but my, my good colleague, he's now left the Greater London Authority, but he was one of the leads for green infrastructure. In all his talks, he said, what what we, what he said, he, says, he says in his talks is, we need to blur the boundary. What we've always done, like cities of people, countryside is for nature, yeah. And what we do in cities are right, okay, you can have a nature reserve, you can have a park, but now this is the built environment. That's concrete paving, that's built environment, yeah. We need to blur those boundaries. So really all we're trying to do is blur those boundaries. We don't have this delineation, yeah. In terms of big mammals running or walking around, you know, I mean, otters are probably going up and down the Thames as I speak, yeah. And, you know, in Vienna... You know, the beaver population is now causing problems, actually, in the centre of beaver, yeah. And we got fox, you know, I saw one this morning, you know, I see one. So, and I see more foxes here than I did um, when I was brought up in the countryside. But, you know, by blurring those boundaries in, in urban areas, and particularly dense urban areas, we will create space for nature to take that up. What exactly that nature is? That's not the issue. The issue is creating the space to allow it to come. So if you, sorry, and the other thing is Brasov. You get a Brasov in Romania, you, you, you might you might meet a brown bear in the middle of town. You know, you might meet a brown bear in the middle of town. You know, well, there's a fear, isn't there? It's not rewilding people's fear, especially in this country, because there's no predators left. Like, it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, well, like the beavers and things, and there, people have problems with those to some degree. But when you start saying, oh, lynx and predators. Coming back, people get really nervous and they're like, oh, yeah. what are they eating my baby or something? Yeah. All they have there is in a thousand of them in North America, many of them, many of them in um, Europe as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've missed a lynx once in Sweden. You know, the chance of seeing a lynx, you know, I'd love to see one in the wild, but the chance of seeing one, you know, they, they introduce lynx, you know, It'd take me probably 50 years to even see one and I'll be dead by then. You know, I mean, this is this, this in, it's a, that inherent fear. But I think a lot of it's generated by the farming community and the farmer community. And fair enough, I can understand their anxiety, but you know, that can be mitigate, mitigated against. But the fun thing, as long as it had whatever's introduced or rewilded into this country, if it was historically here, but as long as it performs a real and meaningful ecological function, not just some. We're going back to the lost Eden because yeah, that drives me nuts a bit. Yeah. You know. Well, you talk about peripheries of the term between the blurring the boundaries between sort of the more rural and natural, well, more ecologically impacted areas uh, and the city. Obviously, the, the boundary is mostly suburbia. Yeah. Do you, how, how do you think that suburban areas, where there are large gardens, but maybe they're not connected or maybe there's barriers in some way. How do you think those areas can be better rewilded, I suppose, or, or greened? I mean, you say you're not particularly interested in green, pitch green roofs. Yeah, I mean, it's only because, you know, I mean, 
what I would just on that one very quickly, I come back to suburbia is like, I don't think anywhere in the country we should be putting picture roofs up. I think we should be putting flat roofs up with green roofs on. Yeah. Even a Barrett's home site, you know, why does everybody have to have a pitch roof? I mean, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's nuts. I mean, Christ Almighty, you know. Not even a green pitch roof. Oh, God, you know, just just put a bloody flat roof on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but if you're going to build a big housing estate in Bicester, let's say, yeah, why does it have to be pitched? Why can't it just be all flat roofs? Oh, it's because that's what we always do. And everybody in the countryside expects to have a pitch roof. They only have flat roofs in cities. You go, like, okay, you know, no, let's change the culture, you know? Well, yeah, well, let's just change the culture, you know? Um, how do you green up suburbia? Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, my context these days is South East London, really. And one of the things we've got in South London is all these river corridors. Now, some of them are, are channelized. Let's get them out for stars. Some places are going to be very, very difficult with that. And there's been a lot. Yeah, well, we've got the Ravensbourne and the Craggy, and then there's a the shuttle and the Cray. And there's parts of the Ravensbourne which will be very, very difficult to get out of the concrete channel, the big long section with Catford and um, and Beckenham Place Park. But, you know, if we could, if that area gets regenerated and some of the industrial sheds can get knocked down, we could then open it up. And there's done, been a lot of work on the Ravensbourne to open it up because Lewisham flooded significantly in '53. That to me is the first step because river corridors actually should always be natural space because they're meant to flood. <laughs> we build right up to the river and what happens? We have a flood and everybody goes, oh, the environment agency hasn't done its work properly. And you go like, no, it's because somebody built next to the river. And that's that's how you do that. Connecting people's gardens, again, you know, people are worried about hedgehogs in South East London. There's not that many hedgehogs, but you go, right, if they could all put a gap between their fences, yeah, but, oh, you know, I, I think I, I'm just not so worried about that, you know. We've got a network of green spaces in South East London that could be better connected by greening up some some walkways and things, but, you know, the marble white is getting from all the way to, to Blackheath and the River Thames for all this patchwork of, you know, sometimes it has to go half a mile through built up, but it's getting here. And I just look at that marble wall, I go like, well, you've got here. So maybe that housing say it's not such a big barrier to you. Yeah, maybe. You know? Yeah. You know, it's, 10 years ago, it was highly unlikely to see a marble white on Blackheath. And they're slowly increasing. There's a site literally three miles away where it's completely packed with them. And this, and then they're in the next part, which is about half a mile away. And now they're on Black Eve, which is about, do you know what I mean? And you're going like, well, they're traveling. So I think what, what we, don't get me wrong, but what, what we're really, I, I saw a friend of mine last night, he said, oh, no, there's too many people moving into Lewisham, Dusty, all those tower blocks, and the kingfishers won't nest in Brookmill Park anymore. I said, the kingfishers have been nesting there for 20 years. You know, there's people be going into that park for 20 years. Just some more kids running up and down the river. They're sorted out. They're pretty tough, my kingfishers. You know, it's one of the best places to see kingfishers in the whole of the country. But we get this fear that change is going to be harmful. So what I think architects, maybe this is the way round up, my, my, my message to architects and built environment professionals 
you know, work with people like me because we can actually make the world a better place. But we've got to go, we're going to make it better for nature and people. And that's all I'm trying to do. And uh, it's been an interesting 20 years, but there's a lot left to do. <laughs> there's still more to do, yeah? So last question then, what's your current, your main area of interest and focus of sort of research and, and curiosity at the moment? Where, where are you looking to make progress in the next year or two or three well there's a London borough which has 90,000 square metres of social housing that could be retrofitable I spent the last 20 years going how can I create some kind of how could a mechanism be created to fund retrofitting of the 32% of central London that could be retrofitted tomorrow so I it's not going to work the way it does in other countries where they can incentivize retrofit so I've been working with a number of carbon negative materials, which is said he offset or embedded uh, below the radar. Um, I just put it in. And uh, hopefully in the next three months, the first 500 square metres goes in in the London Borough Tower Hamlets. They will also have solar panels. And they're currently the carbon story is being calculated at the moment at the University of East London. And if we can show that that's a carbon negative green roof or carbon neutral green roof, is that a mechanism to get retrofit in whole scale in any city in the United Kingdom where they have social housing like Tower Hamlets? And let's be quite frank, anything that built, built in Tower Hamlets after the Second World War, there's hundreds of that all over the country. So that's what exercises my brain most of the time. Because then if you could retrofit social housing uh, in Southwark, which has the most social housing, and Lewisham, you know, you'd make a significant area of green space in the city. Yeah. Well, so it's easy to retrofit uh, sort of everything that's owned by a single authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas creating a financial mechanism that incentivizes private owners to actually retrofit their property. Yeah, well, the focus is really that social housing is a lot easier, but the city uh, in central London, and it is a figure that's published, and I did calculate it, 32% of central London is inverted roofs that can be retrofitted with green roofs. Real estate owners who are interested in embedded carbon, is that this an incentive for people who are part of the global real estate sustainability benchmark or prestigious, you know, the Groveners, uh, you know, the big landowning people. So that's really what, and I've, I'm doing some stuff with several of the big real estate people. That's what I'm interested in because I think the private sector is actually interested in this stuff now. Yeah probably more so than actually central government, that actually the, the real estate community understands that climate change is coming. And there's finally demand for it as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, and, you know, that stuff could be taken to new development. But if you focus on retrofit, it's a lot, lot easier. Because, you know, if you're doing a big development in London, there are so many people involved. And what I love retrofitting is there's you and the client and the roofer. There's only three of you. You can't have many arguments, you know? You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you're doing the centre of London, I'll try and persuade everyone to do the suburbs and the countryside. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Southampton, I just mentioned, mapped Southampton's green roofs before Christmas, and they've got quite a lot of roofs that could be retrofitted. So every single city has a relative amount. The thing about London is it generally has a lot more inverted roofs than other cities. So when I did Birmingham, calculated Birmingham, you know, it's 32% in, in London. In Birmingham, I estimated it would probably be about 22. 
because they don't necessarily, they have a lot more warm roofs in the city centre. And I've looked at Manchester and it's sort of similar. So it's something about London because of the way they, they build the city, city of London. It generally is, it's all inverted roofs in the city of London. But it's just interesting why that is in London and other cities tend to do a lot more warm roofs. I don't know. I don't know why that is. But there's huge potential in social housing, but also in the town, the city centres, because there's a lot. There's generally a lot of inverted roofs in city centres. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that was fascinating insight. Well, no. I definitely will continue to do it myself as an architect. I hope all other objects will do a lot more specifying green room, angry walls, if they're designed correctly. Yeah, but it's always if it's designed correctly, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking me.